Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. After the Great East Japan Earthquake of 2011, I call it the Fukushima Earthquake, triggers a tsunami, nuclear meltdown, and mass evacuation in the Fukushima prefecture. Local hunters are enlisted to dispose of irradiated wild boars that now roam the abandoned streets and buildings. And that is the premise behind this really terrific short documentary film called The Toxic Pigs of Fukushima. And the director of that is uh, Otto Bell, and he's joining us today to talk about, the, again, this remarkable documentary. It really is in so many ways. Otto Bell, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's, it's, it's really nice to be with you. Thank you. There's so many questions about what's going on in Fukushima right now in terms of people living there, living near there. What prompted you to want to go there and spend time in an, essentially a irradiated part of the world to document what you did in this film? I saw two batches of photographs that, that flat out inspired me. Like um, one set was animal specific by a photographer called Toru Hanai. And he had done a great job of capturing these radiated boars that have sort of overtaken the abandoned streets and villages of the area. And then there was a second batch of photos that I saw by Yuki Iwanami. And he had done some beautiful portraiture of the handful of people who had never really left. They may have evacuated for a couple of days. Some didn't even do that. Um, but there are a, a, a handful of people who really stuck it out and chose to remain in this very changed landscape. And it struck me that combining those two sides of the coin, the, um, the, the human and the animal, could result in quite a, a telling way to access the storylines of this um, irradiated place. You know, the 10th anniversary of 311 of, of the Fukushima disaster was, was fast approaching. And, and I was curious to know what life was like for the people who, who, who did remain in this, in, this, in this place. You know, on one hand, it's absolutely shocking that anyone would stay in an area that is by all accounts one of the most dangerous places on the planet to be. Hmm. But on the other hand, it's also, I guess, a logical extension of the commitment and the tradition that people all around the world have, certainly here in, in this part of Japan, to the to the place where they grew up to a place that is so familiar and so so much a part, not of just their lives, but their families, generations and generations of family life. So on that level, it is an understandable impulse to, to no matter what, want to stay there. When you got there, I'm just kind of curious your reaction. And just for the sake of, I, I know I mentioned it in the introduction, the Great East Japan earthquake, the Fukushima earthquake, was a world-changing event. And to this day, I, I contend, it's still changing the world in many ways that we're not essentially aware of, but it is still to this day. This, is a, this was a massive event. 
when you got there, what was your reaction to the people who were still there? Just viscerally. There was an overriding sense of resignation amongst the people living there, a, a kind of a pervading sense of sadness. Um, our arrival coincided with a government push to encourage resettlement of the area. Uh, they were asking people to, to return and, and restart their lives in this place, despite radiation levels being dangerously high, continuing to be dangerously high. Um, you know, that the, the plans are to host baseball and softball matches at Azuma Stadium in Fukushima, you know, about 50 miles from the disaster site. And the people that I met, you know, the three, depending on which village, about three to 10% of people have returned. As I say, some never left. And the overwhelming um, message that I got from them, from the actual people making these sacrifices every day, living in this changed environment, was that they had been forgotten. That the government had turned the page and was focusing on positive news stories and that their plight had been brushed under the carpet. So the people that I met were ready to unload, right? They were ready to uh, share their stories because they felt they felt forgotten. In some cases, it's worse. They felt stigmatized. Uh, a farmer I spoke to had just been to Tokyo, and he said that, you know, the city folk there were saying, oh, you know, don't marry girls from Fukushima. You know that they that they have somehow been been shunned, and of course their subsidies have ended. You know they were asked to evacuate, and their accommodation and rent was paid for, but now the government has officially reopened their towns and villages. The subsidies have gone away, so they're kind of torn as to whether to return to a uh, a radiated landscape or, or or you know continue life elsewhere. I will say that most of the people that I met tended to be older yeah right um they tended to have a deep sense of responsibility to their ancestors and their forebears who kind of lived on the land and they wanted to continue that as i say resignation there, there was also kind of a fait accompli attitude to the idea that well you know old age is probably going to get me before radiation does so uh i'm going to i'm going to continue a quiet life here. The Boers became a really interesting way to unlock the situation because, you know, Boers, Boers eat anything. Boers, are, they're omnivores by nature, right? They, <laughs> they, they eat the ground, they eat the, the, the rubbish, the trash, you know. The, the, so in that sense, they actually become kind of very interesting scientific benchmarks for the health of the ecosystem in which they are inhabiting. So, you know, I came in part because I had read reports of these pigs displaying radiation levels 300 times the safety standards. And as part of that government effort to, to push resettlement, the government had enlisted local hunters to clean up the boar explosion. You know, they're a pervasive, invasive species. So, you know, and uh, the, the, they had really overtaken the abandoned homes and streets They'd come down from the from the forested mountains, taken over these streets in the absence of people. Now the government wants people back there, so they were they were saying, "All right, you hunters, you got to dispose of all these boars. You got to clean them up." 
because you know they were destroying crops um you know kids couldn't walk to school because they might encounter a ball you know these things were happening and and you know as the headmaster told me you know a child is not going to win that fight you know it's it, it's serious and um and these hunters well you saw in the film they they have a they're not rambo types you know they're not gung-ho they're not reveling in this act if anything they're the they, they do it with a heavy sense of duty and responsibility. And in their mind, they are trying to set about rebalancing um, a landscape where nature has clawed back so much of the man-made elements. And um, yeah, it, uh, it was it, a fairly gruesome and deeply tragic task that they had been set. And it's one they didn't take lightly. I want to talk about the film itself. It's mm. beautifully paced. It has this wonderful sort of the the cinematography. It's it's such a beautiful film to look at. Thank you. And it's yeah, you're very welcome. And and in regard to a situation that while it's it's sort of this invisible tragedy horror, right. I, there's I'm grasping for the word. This is an extremely dangerous, awful place to be and it will be for hundreds of years and yet it's <laughs> what you've done is made this beautiful looking film about these people and this that word resignation really resonates as as i think back on the film a fatalist a kind of you know this is my destiny to live out my life here because my ancestors did and i'm curious if if i'm not extrapolating too much or i'm i'm overthinking this Japan is a country, the only country in the history of the world to have had two nuclear devices detonated on its people, on its mm. civilian population, right? Mm. Both, both of the uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima were civilian targets. Yeah. And now Fukushima. Yeah. Through all of that, they are still pushing to put people back into this situation. I find it, I don't know what to say. I don't even, I don't, I, I'm at a loss for words. If anyone on the planet would understand the ramifications of putting people in this situation, it would be the people of Japan. Am I, am I making too much of this? Is this? No, no, it's something that, um, you know, and, and we can come back to this. The, I think the parallels, I filmed this before the pandemic and um, the parallels between the unseen enemy of radiation yeah. and COVID are, yes. are, are very interesting. But to zero in specifically on Japan's nuclear past, um, it was on my mind, of, of course, absolutely, when we arrived. And there were things that I did with the cinematography, um, which were an attempt to, to echo that. Um, so, for example, Ozu, you know, giant of Japanese cinema. Um, I loved, I've always admired his pillow shots, you know, those transitional cutaways that where he'll hold on a landscape or yeah. an, an inanimate household object for like five seconds. And it's almost like a still life painting, but it's it's absent of humans. And it's quite it's quite unnerving actually to spend that amount of time looking at a frame without without a person in it. And you know. 
70 years ago, I, I, I often think that his pillow shots were actually kind of almost like passive aggressive commentary on the increasing commercialization and Americanization, if you will, of, of post-World War II Japan. You know, in in the shadow of of the uh, the the nuclear disaster at that time, came a flurry of of consumer goods and Coca Cola and and um, all of these elements. So I was very interested to revisit those pillow shots, almost shot for shot, matchy matchy, <laughs> seventy years later, because they were so shiny and new in Ozu's time in that post World War II moment and see how they had come full circle or, or, or been laid low, been, been irradiated by this latest nuclear disaster, right? And that's why we, we hold on like, um, uh, you know, packaged food and, and um, frying pans and kettles and stopped clocks, because they are a sort of a nod to the fact that in a way we've kind of been here before. I was just blown away by the beauty of this film just what you're describing as you go through town you you, you linger on these objects I, I remember the shot of the doll that's yeah. you know on the side of the road all these things that you know uh 11 years ago a th- more of a le- more or less a thriving smaller community you know doing well raising families doing all the things playing baseball speaking of americanization of japan playing mm-hmm. baseball um all of these things that and it's there's something about the japanese ability to adapt i think there's something while they're very culturally monocultural in mm-hmm. a lot of ways but in other ways their ability to kind of adapt i think yeah. is is really interesting and I don't, I'm not, you know, I just, it's just fascinating. Well, my intention with, the, you know, look, I, I'm a, I'm a white English man living in New York. I am not possibly best placed to parachute into Japan and tell this story. And that was very much on my mind. Um, like I said, there, there has been a government push to kind of shut down any negative stories. Uh, a, a, a watchdog group of journalists were actually shut down at the Asahi Shin, Shinbun newspaper for, for, for telling too many negative stories about Fukushima. So, you know, the, there is the, the sense that somebody had to, to go and, and tell stories because the extreme access-driven nature of Japanese journalism means that there's not really an appetite to go against the government so much. That said, I'm still a foreigner and I can't possibly understand you know what the last 10 years have been like for these people and and the sacrifices that they made so i deliberately tried to create a film that simply gave space to the people who chose to remain to provide their testimony without judgment or too much heavy-handed exposition you know that's why it's not a flurry of statistics in the film. That's why there are not too many, um, you know, talking head interviews. The voices tend to be um, untethered from, 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 uh, and they sort of linger almost like ghost voices over, over the imagery that you see, because this was all about 
all right, tell me, tell me how it how it is and how it feels, and I will try my best to relay that to people outside of the country as well as well as wider Japan, but you know specifically yeah. the wider world. Um, and they were keen to um, to sort of provide that warning shot, and and right. you know we've been in we've been in lockdown for what nearly a year. These people have been living with it for for ten years, and I yeah. think there are lessons that we can learn by just listening to their experiences so that that was that was my goal is to not be too heavy-handed in my interpretation of things uh and the information that i received and simply to 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 do my damnedest to relay it to the audience in a kind of an unbroken stream of consciousness and it's beautifully done and it's a story where everyone everyone's doing their best and in some ways, it's understandable. It's completely understandable that the government would want to move on. It's completely understandable that they would want to pretend, in some ways, that it's not happening. I agree. Yeah, and you know, it, it, these are all these are sort of institutional impulses, and they're human impulses, right? These are the two things, and they come together. The fact that you we watch the sort of the the uh, the chain of events in the the boar's life. We watch, we watch the family of boars. We watch him foraging. We watch them being shot. We watch them being disposed of. But absolutely, all of that. There is this metaphor of of the boars, as you said. It's beautifully, you beautifully said it, in that regard. And uh, and all of those things being said, everyone's doing their best, and everyone's doing in some ways what you would expect we as human beings, in order to carry forward, have to do. But it does not diminish for me the sheer human tragedy of it all. It, it doesn't. It doesn't detract from my sense of dread for these people and for and for us as human beings. I mean, Chernobyl. I mean, would we go back to Chernobyl if we had to do these things? I don't know. Funny that that line though from Chernobyl um, comes back to me. You know where where the actor says. Um, Imagine a million little bullets um, that you can't see, but that are all trying to kill you. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, slash, slash fudging the line, but it it, it is uh, you know that that sort of unseen enemy of radiation hangs over the place and it does weigh on you. You know, today it would be like standing next to somebody indoors, you know, as yeah. they cough in your face constantly. You feel the 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 weight of the radiation upon you. And, you know, we had personal guy encounters and stuff like that. You know, one of the things that we talked a lot about is, all right, yeah, how do we give people space to provide their their testimony and, and share their experiences? But then also, how do we relay this eerie ambience to the audience? So we used a special set of, of, of actually so, rebuilt Soviet lenses that give you these crazy dynamic shifts in the color rendering of the image. Um, they're kind of like um, the Helios lenses, the Boca monsters from, from Eastern Europe in the in the 80s. And it's almost like filming with uh, uh, expired film stock, you know? So suddenly the, 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 the light will flare in an, off, in an interesting off-axis way, or it'll sort of bleed into the frame. And uh, it was to give that sense of, uh, could that be radiation? Yeah. You know, um, the, I had these special square aperture blades made 
so that if you look inside the defocus areas in the film, you'll see square yeah. man-made images, which, you know, even if it's at a subconscious level, were designed to make you feel like this was an off-kilter world, like man had left a, a, a sort of a fingerprint on, on this changed landscape. And, and then, you know, similarly, the color grade, you know, the color grade was, I wanted to, you know, we were filming during rainy season and I wanted just to, to dial that up and really dirty up the sky, a bit like Children of Men. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a heaviness and a suffocation to the environment, which which was felt, you know, which which you did feel, you know, albeit invisibly weighing upon you. Those were some of the things that we could do to, uh, and then the music as well. It's it's a very, it's a very jarring kind of dysphonic soundtrack by Midori Takada, an, an incredible, legendary ambient Japanese artist, and the um, the music that she provided, that she actually scored it to picture. And I love it because it does not let you rest. It does not let you relax. It will come up and bite you at, at certain moments. And and I, again, it was about relaying an off-kilter sense of uneasiness about this place where we found ourselves. Um, so there were things that we could do around the edges to amplify the voices that we collected uh, to, to um, yeah, to give yeah. you a sense of what well, this place like to be in it is it's all of those things i it's it's a 35 minute short documentary film i'm certain um it's going to be thoroughly regarded in terms of just um as we move forward towards the the awards season what i will say about that is anything that will draw attention to the plight of these people even at the same time as we get you know this positive blitz of news for the olympics if it can give them a stage um, so that we remember the yeah. thing that they've gone through, then albeit, you know, yeah. yeah. And I, this is just to me reinforces the notion that it does. I mean, while I love long form documentary films and they're wonderful in so many ways, this is a very powerful, it's a really concise and, and um, beautifully rendered powerful film that does a lot in, in 35 minutes. And um, to you, I, my congratulations for the film, the toxic pigs of Fukushima and uh, to your future work. I, I, in, in addition to your soon to be uh, addition to your family, congratulations. Your that's some part of your work as well, but the most uh, important production. Yeah. Well, it's the most important production. <laughs> I'm not directing that one though. That's... <laughs> <laughs> but um and also to anything you're working on i would so be honored to have you back uh, on to talk about you as i mentioned eagle huntress which was a highly regarded documentary film and taking us to places that we just wouldn't have otherwise had an opportunity to go to and this is certainly one of them as well the toxic pigs of fukushima auto bell thank you so very much for your time today cheers mike i appreciate it You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music